Welcome to the Beyond High Performance Podcast, featuring content and conversations from me, Jason Jaggard, along with our elite coaches at Novus Global, their high-performing clients, and the faculty of the Meta Performance Institute for Coaching. On this podcast, you'll hear some of the world's best executive coaches and high-performing leaders, artists, and athletes discuss how they continue to go beyond high performance in their lives and businesses. I always very strategically and deliberately had a plan in place. What would my job be? in three years, in five years, in nine years, in 12 years. And I actually drew out a 40-year career plan. And I followed that plan maniacally by constantly kicking myself out of my job before someone else thought they would do it for me. In this episode of The Meta Performance Show, I sit down with the one and only Scott Miller. Scott is the author of seven books, a global keynote speaker, and host of multiple podcasts, including C-Suite Conversations and Franklin Covey's podcast on leadership with Scott Miller. We talk about Scott's 26-year journey with the same company, Franklin Covey, and he shares his secrets for success in building a long, sustainable, and fruitful career. In our conversation, we explore how Scott overcame a speech impediment to become a renowned public speaker, why his network is one of his most guarded possessions, and his evolution as a writer leading to his newest book, The Ultimate Guide to Great Mentorship, available wherever books are sold. I really love this book. I can't wait for you to learn more about it. This guy is hilarious, vulnerable, and super insightful. Enjoy the show. The wait is finally over. Our new book, Beyond High Performance, What Great Coaches Know About How the Best Get Better, is available for purchase wherever books are sold. This USA Today bestseller is more than 250 pages of expertise, anecdotes, and insights from Novus Global Coaches, as well as faculty from the Meta Performance Institute for Coaching. We are so excited to put our proprietary framework that has helped thousands of leaders achieve more into your hands. And we can't wait to see how you'll use the book to enhance your life and leadership. To learn more and obtain this essential resource for yourself, visit novus.global forward slash book. Scott Miller, thank you so much. I've been looking forward to this. You were gracious enough to have me on your podcast, and I didn't know even that was part of the deal. I just wanted to have you introduce to our audiences, and so I'm thrilled to be able to talk with you today. Thanks for being on the show. Jason, I think it's important that your listeners know that when I interviewed you on the podcast that I host for Franklin Covey, C-Suite Conversations, which is you know, increasingly influential podcast each week where I interview people from the C-Suite, I was so riveted and captivated by your point of view on leadership and culture performance that you're one of only two guests that I've ever moved from that podcast and invited over to what is now the world's largest weekly leadership podcast on leadership with Scott Miller. By the way, always put your name in your podcast. I am so looking forward to having a more in-depth conversation with you on the other podcast that I host for Franklin Covey. What an honor to be on your platform today. Thank you for the invite. Well, thank you so much. And I am excited to slow down the conversation and go biographical and get to know you a little bit. And so just to our listeners, we're going to talk a little bit about Scott's life, and I think you're really going to enjoy it. And then uh, Scott is a prolific communicator. He's written seven books. He's got eight in the works. He's on. He's hosting multiple podcasts, like hosting like multiple podcasts, not to mention all the podcasts that people ask him to be on. And so he communicates for a living. And we're going to get into the nuts and bolts of how that works. And then we're going to end with him talking about his book that will be out by the time this podcast is launched. And he sent it to me in the mail in advance copy about a couple of weeks ago. And I loved it. And I want all of our coaches to read it. I want all of the folks that I get to work with to read it. I think it's really got a lot to offer you. So Without further ado, Scott, please talk to us. Anytime I meet anybody who 
even dabbles in the political space, I get so excited because I admire, no matter where you are on the political spectrum, I just admire that process. So can you talk to us a little bit about why your journey in politics in your early career, how it started and why you like it? I live in Salt Lake City, Utah with my wife and our three young sons, eight, 11, and 13. Do not do that. Do not attempt to have three boys in five years. That was crazy. <laughs> Uh, I was for 25 years an executive officer in the Franklin Covey Company. You know Stephen Covey, the Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. I was his yes. chief marketing officer and executive vice president of thought leadership. Prior to that, I was born and raised in Central Florida. Worked for the Walt Disney Company for four years on the real estate development side until one day they invited me to leave, <laughs> which is kind of how it happens at Utah or at in Disney, right? I mean. They thought I was the wrong fit and they were right. So where does a single Catholic boy from Orlando move? Well, of course, to Provo, Utah, where all the single Catholic people were. <laughs> not true. Not yeah, a single not a of, Catholic person in Utah no. 29 years ago, but it's been a remarkable ride. Prior to that, I spent several years working on a variety of political campaigns, was a staff member on the Bush Quail campaign back in 1988. <laughs> they were successful. Yeah. Worked on a couple of U.S. Senate campaigns and local state national campaigns. Always thought I would end up being a candidate as opposed to being a strategist, but then realized the economics of that weren't in my favor if you want to be not corrupt. And so I decided to go into a corporate life and have been very blessed along the way to have spent, gosh, nearly 30 years with one organization, lived around the world, London, Chicago, Salt Lake, for Franklin Covey, and I'm now in Salt Lake, and dad is job number one keeping my marriage together is job number two and anything else is just a lucky third. <laughs> Trust me. There's a lot of different directions with that brief biography we can go. There is one question I did want to ask you, which is what's the secret to staying at the same place for 30 years? I feel like people yeah. hop around so much, yeah. and, which is fine. Like no problem if people will hop around. It's very unique. Of all the incredible things you just mentioned, one of the most incredible other than still being married with as many kids as you have is the fact that you were able to be at the same company for so long. How would you recommend people do that? Well, I'm not sure it's everybody's desire, right? I mean, there, it seems to be very much in vogue right now to have an 18-month career at 20 Dude. companies by the time you finish working. For me, it wasn't really secretive. It was a deliberate process. I've always been a fan of uh, self-disruption, of hmm. reinventing myself, of always knowing when is that fatigue coming in, perhaps even subconscious fatigue once I've mastered a job intellectually emotionally, technically, but always sort of staying one foot ahead of the proverbial boot. I once heard something that was both insulting and profound, and that is you're never in the room when your career is decided for you. And I was so offended by that, but self-aware enough to know that's true, that I didn't want anybody else deciding my career for me, whether or not I was the right person to run this team or that team or be part of this downsizing or that, you know, upskilling. And so I always very strategically and deliberately had a plan in place. What would my job be in three years, in five years, in nine years, in 12 years? And I actually drew out a 40-year career plan from wow. manager to director to senior director to associate VP to SVP to EVP to CMO. And I followed that plan maniacally by constantly kicking myself out of my job before someone else thought they would do it for me. And so I did have nine distinct careers that averaged about four to five years each in one organization. Yeah. Not for everybody, but it wasn't accidental. It was very intentional and deliberate. So but what made Franklin Covey then special? Like, why did you decide to do that there? 
Oh, I mean, the people, right? First of all, it's a collection of magnet for principle-centered people. Hmm. Franklin Covey prides themselves in being a workplace of choice for achievers with heart. And hmm. so in many cases, I could be a big fish in a small sea. I loved the people there. I was a big fan of Stephen Covey, of course, and of yeah. our CEO. And also the content, right? I mean, this is a, we're not saving lives, but we're saving marriages. We're Please. helping grow organizations. We're building rich cultures inside of clients where people also choose to stay and thrive. And so for me, it was the best of all worlds. And they paid me well because I performed well. What were the early indicators when you knew it was time to pivot? Oh, watching around in other people's careers. It was rarely a reflection of my own. I would watch around and look around at other people inside the company and say, yeah, people are starting to talk. Yeah, they've overstayed their relevance in that. They need to move on. And so I usually looked at other people's longevity and trajectory and started to realize when they were starting to be talked about or considered mm. that maybe they were over their tenure in that particular role. And so I just used that to self-disrupt and never become comfortable in my own job. I'm a pretty self-aware guy. I know my strengths and my weaknesses. I know what I'm great at. I know what I'm not great at. I know that I can be fatiguing, exhilarating. <laughs> no one's ever hired me to give a eulogy. I mean, it's I'm your guy to evacuate a burning building. You know, I'm in charge on that one. So I know when it's time for me to move on to a new audience. You're talking about you know what your strengths are. And I've only really had one conversation with you. But instantly, it's it's so apparent that you love to communicate. You're good at communicating. It is natural for you. I make up, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, it's energizing for you in a way that may not be necessarily true for others. I'd like for you, I'm assuming there are people who are listening to this who have the gift of communication like you do, but they haven't necessarily leaned into it as hard as you have. And so I'd like for you to give us a little bit of a journey through your developing that skill set, because now I feel like that's your whole world. Uh, I, and I could be wrong there, but tell us, how did you get from learning that you're a good communicator to making it essentially your whole job? My answer will surprise you. First of all, I am an introvert who masquerades as an extrovert. Really? Because early in life, I rightly or wrongly determined that the extroverts are the ones that had the most power. Of course, read <laughs> Susan Cain's book, Quiet, and she might dispel that. Yeah. But for some reason, I looked around society and who were the congressional candidates and the wow. mayors and the entrepreneurs and the people that drove the Mercedes, in my opinion, <laughs> how I defined success gross yeah. or otherwise, I thought, well, that takes charisma and it's the loud dominating people. Of course, that's not entirely true. So the truth is I'm an introvert who masquerades as an extrovert. More on that with my therapist. But here's what you don't know also. I have a lifelong speech impediment. I'm a stutterer. I have really? a debilitating stutter. I've been through hundreds of hours of speech therapy, speech pathology, at braces three times, Invisalign twice, headgear, retainers. I have two speech coaches. There are about 35 words I cannot say in public. In the winter time, it exponentiates to about 150 words. Wow. And so I was about 18 years old working in a bakery in Orlando, Florida, where I was raised once. And a woman came in that was a tourist. It's Orlando. And uh -huh. she bought a croissant and some coffee. And Jason, she asked me for directions to some location. I think it might've even been a hair salon. This is 35 years ago. And so I said, you know, proceed down this road and turn left there and look for that and turn right and you're there. Well, anyway, I'm a stutterer. I'm a stutterer. And she turns to me, she was Israeli. I remember she was Israeli because English was her second language. 
And as she walked out the door, she said, you are a powerful communicator. You hmm. have a great command of your language. This will take you far in life, hmm. literally word for word. And it was that validation of me back when I was 18 that really had me for the first time in my life realize, oh, I can be a good communicator. Hmm. So here's a guy with a debilitating speech impediment. I went out and landed an iHeartRadio program, host two of the world's most influential podcasts, keynote for a living. I think it wasn't that I willed it. I just had some belief confirmed by others that I could lean into this and be better than I thought I was. It's kind of like the role of all leaders, right? Is you sometimes believe in someone more than they believe in themselves and you just have to name a potential superpower and sometimes we can fulfill it. And in some cases, maybe I have. That's incredible. So then what were the early reps? I mean, when it's one thing for you to know that you can do it. Did you just like go out and start a speaking career or what were the iterative steps that got you? Hardly, where you, where right? you were I decided to run for student body president that year and went to school every morning at four in the morning and hung up its Miller time posters all over the <laughs> campus. And that yes. was back in the days when you could smoke at school and I rolled cigarettes with my name on it and passed it out in the smoking lounge. And before I knew it, I was working on congressional campaigns and then joined the Franklin Covey company after Disney. And I just continually put myself in uncomfortable positions. Sure. It's interesting. I'm just enough of a narcissist where I kind of don't care what you think about me because I'm willing to be vulnerable. I've always been willing to sort of make mistakes and learn from my lessons and roll with it. And embarrassment sure. is not an emotional I have any familiarity with. <laughs> <And> so <laughs> I just keep going. And because I don't embarrass or I choose not to allow myself to be embarrassed, I think I have put myself in so many uncomfortable positions that it's built a confidence in me. And one other thing I'll share, I don't watch movies. I've watched four movies in my life. Three wow. of them are the Austin Powers trilogy, and the fourth yes. is The Last King of Scotland. But I've read oh, yeah. probably 6,000 books, and I subscribe to 42 magazines, and I read three newspapers a day, print. Because how you build your vocabulary how you become an influential communicator is by reading. You don't build your vocabulary by watching friends on NBC reruns or going and watching movies. How you build your vocabulary is by reading. And so early on, I realized that. And as a result now, all of that knowledge, I think has made me a more competent extemporaneous communicator. That's for your audience to determine, but that's my shtick and I'm going with it. Yeah, no, I think you should. Uh, and you mentioned two coaches. I I'm assuming, is it just yeah. for the speech impediments or is there, I I'm really curious about how yeah. even, you know, as I develop my gifts of communication and want to be faithful in terms of stewarding whatever I have inside of me for that purpose, I'd love to learn more about what coaching sure. looks like for you as a communicator. One is for my diction, my rate, my tone, my enunciation, my inflection, huh. my voice level how to make sure that I speak in a way that isn't just pummeling people nonstop because that's my natural style. I'm a fairly assertive person. My so, wife would say that's a colossal understatement of my personality. So, so, I have so, one so, coach so. that helps me on my stutter, my diction, my flow. I have another speech coach that really is my main stage speech presence, my hand gestures, my eye contact, my movement on stage, my intentional movement, ensure that the story that I am telling is the story that they're hearing that they're seeing, mm. that they're feeling. I never use PowerPoint or slides ever when I speak. Really? I come off the stage down in the audience and I try to tell stories and be more connected and natural. So those are the two that work in tandem. 
on a lot of Saturdays, you'll find me in St. Louis, Missouri, where the night before was Aerosmith at an 8,000-person stadium, and I'm on stage speaking to no one except for my speech coach, 14 rows up with a bullhorn saying, stop, start over, and I'm just going back. The night before was Aerosmith, and I'm just in front of this entire audience with no one else there but my really mean but competent speech coach breaking me down and building me back up. Oh, that's incredible. And thanks for that, by the way, that detail. I do want to talk more about this because, and not necessarily about speech coaches particularly, but you know, we're, and we're going to get to your book, which is The Ultimate Guide to Great Mentorship. And you, you could replace mentorship with coaching. I appreciate that you broadened it to mentorship because it could really could be any kind of person investing in anyone else. But I know that you are passionate about coaching. And of course, Franklin Covey is an amazing coaching company, a leadership development company. And it's fascinating to me how people want to get good at stuff but they don't necessarily want to invest themselves to get good at stuff. Yeah. And so you are a naturally gifted communicator, and then you put a ton of work into developing that. And you've got two coaches who are helping you mine that. I just love the uh, intentionality behind that. Well, I'm not a naturally gifted communicator. I think I've worked hard to get there. Yeah. But I do. I think, how can I possibly improve if I don't continue to disrupt myself and challenge what I think I'm great at? And you know, just when I think I'm reading an audience, I realize I'm kind of reading the audience wrong. Or hmm. well, I think you can't you can't rest on your laurels. You have to keep reinventing yourself and improving yourself and pushing yourself out there. I once interviewed Rachel Hollis, of course, the famous author and influencer. And Rachel said something that has really impacted me profoundly. She said, most people aren't afraid of failure. They're afraid of other people seeing them fail. Hmm. And I'm not sure how much that's resonant with me in terms of my philosophy. I believe it's true, but I constantly want to give my best. And by the way, you know, as a keynote speaker, when someone's paying a large keynote fee for you, you can't phone it in. I think too many speakers wing it. Hmm. I, I think I've seen two ends of a continuum. It's it, They just wing it and they hope their personality or their fame will take it or they over-prepare it and it feels robotic or artificial or even they read a speech or something. I mean, take the yes. podium off the stage. Check your PowerPoint slide and leave it at home. Master your content, research your audience, practice your stories, and then be vulnerable and have a conversation with your audience, and you're 90% the way there. Nothing will humble you more than seeing yourself on stage and you say to yourself, why am I pacing like that? Wait, why are my hand gestures, not? they should be reversed? Because if I'm saying A to Z, I can't show them Z to A. So you have to reverse your hand gestures to match the story you're telling. And why is every third word like or, or ah? Now, those are vocalized pauses. You can never use the word like. And so I've been working hard on trying to eliminate those so that my message resonates with the audience. This is kind of stuff that I practice a lot. I love it. What about the uh, financial payoffs? Because I can imagine someone saying, I, don't, I can't afford to hire a coach, let alone two, tell me be a public speaker. You know, I'm sure you understand that's not exactly how it works. Can you talk to our audience a little bit about the payoff for that? Well, of course, I wasn't hiring two coaches in my 20s, right? I mean, I worked, I don't know, a couple hundred thousand hours at a 25-year career to be able now to launch the business. I'll tell you, I made a lot of sacrifices. I don't have a cabin. I don't have a ski boat. You know, I we, we make some sacrifices to build this business. And so my wife reminds me quarterly when I launch books, you spent twice as much as the advance on launching this book, but it's because I'm trying to invest in myself in a business and build something for my family. And hopefully that what I do appear at a client's event 
they have a lot riding on it. I mean, your their keynote can crush not just their conference, but their business. And so I take it extremely seriously. I made some mistakes, small mistakes, nothing gargantuan, right? But yeah. I shared a joke that didn't resonate in that audience. I'm a Catholic. Everyone knows that. And I think I can tell Catholic jokes pretty well. Not in not in this particular city I went to, did not <laughs> go over well. And so I've learned yeah. that lesson. But yeah. yeah, it is a sacrifice. I don't have a vacation home. I don't drive the, a Porsche like you do, well, Jason, you know, or any of your Porsches for that matter. I mean, the third one is is older, so you know the gas mileage isn't as great. No, 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 it's a little excessive. The third one, Jason. <laughs> That's right. Hi, my name is Mike Park, and I'm a proud graduate of the Meta Performance Institute for Coaching. The faculty of the Meta Performance Institute not only provided the training, tools, and experience to learn how to coach people toward powerful growth and thrilling results, but also advocated for that kind of growth and results in my own life. I had the unique opportunity to have world-class executive coaches invest in my development, both professionally and personally. It's a privilege to be part of a tribe of coaches fiercely committed to exploring what we are capable of together. If you're looking to become a coach or to set up your coaching practice to reach the next level, I highly recommend the certification from the Meta Performance Institute for Coaching. To fill out a free assessment of your abilities as a coach and to connect with someone to find out if the Meta Performance Institute is for you, check out www.mp.institute. So, and you mentioned this running a business and I would like for you to tell our audience your title because you're still connected to Franklin Covey. You still exist in that ecosystem and it does represent, I think, a new season of your influence and your leadership and your business building. I think there's a lesson to be learned in this. I'm probably the world's only ever former executive officer of a public company that left, maintained a three-year consulting contract where I had a dozen of their employees reporting to me as a contractor, still an ambassador of the firm, you know, writing books for them and keynoting for them, while, mm-hmm. I'll sum- while I'm simultaneously launching my own sort of complimentary business and you could argue some ways competitive healthy competition yeah and i don't recommend that but i do think <laughs> it's something i did well yeah and i'm very yeah. comfortable sharing this and that is i believe that i made and kept commitments i hmm. believe that i did not oversell myself that i built a reputation with the board of directors and the executive team and the new ceo coming in that i was going to honor my promises and over deliver value while that gave me a nice runway to launch my own book writing business and my own agency. I, my, my day job is I'm a talent speaking and literary agent. My agency is called Grade Miller, so that's my bread and butter. I yeah. speak to keep myself relevant and to show all of my clients I know what their life is like. Yeah, But I believe that I, I reaped the rewards of 25 years of making and keeping commitments at Franklin Covey and they kept me around, and I'm still around going into next year as an ambassador for them. There's ups and downs with that, right? I have to be thoughtful. I can't start a Chip and Dale show in Las Vegas because that because <laughs> I'm an yeah. ambassador for their brand. But I understand. I have the same problem. It was I mean, a joke. They, they, they won't stop calling, but you know we both have to say no. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so that's actually super. I didn't know that, I, and I would like to hear. You mentioned keeping, making, keeping promises, but also from, from their perspective, why do you think they kept you? Because three years, three and a half years or whatever it is, is a long yeah. transition time. Yeah. That demands a ton of trust. Can you talk to us about how you orchestrated that with them? And it says a lot about them too, that they would continue to want a trusting relationship with you as you transition. You know, I'm a pretty good strategist. So I don't play chess, I play checkers. So I think really thoughtfully around Okay, so what after that? And if I do this, what's the implication? And if I do that, what's the implication? I don't want to. I don't want to play it as Machiavellian, but I'm pretty good at thinking 
two or three steps ahead. Mm -hmm. And I'm also recognizing when I overstep my boundaries, when I owe an apology, when yes. I did something wrong, when I still thought I was an officer, but I was a contractor and confused those two terms mm. and I had to apologize for something. So sure. I think they would say that. I also think Franklin Covey would say, you know, as Scott's brand has grown responsibly, it helps their brand. Obviously, they're, yeah. you know, degrees of magnitude larger than my brand. But I also think they'd say Scott has skills that we value. Scott knows how to launch books. Scott knows how to, you know, get great thought leaders on a podcast. And I'm very passionate about their mission still. Yeah. So I think it's been a mutual appreciation, sometimes pre-forgiveness, meaning they've pre-forgiven me for some mistakes I've made because they know me after 28 years. I, you know, I, yeah. sometimes I get a little bit heady, a little too big for my britches, and they got to call me and say, do that again, and you're out. Okay, I'm sorry, I was wrong. I missed it. You know, I'm just being, being self-aware on that. And I think so, again, like doing research on you, it is very much a, people may still think that you're officially or formally there. And I think that, because you're an evangelist for them. I am. And I think one, you know, as an outsider watching, I can, if I put myself in their shoes or, you know, as with our firm, as we have coaches and inevitably, most of the people who join the firm stay for a really long time, but inevitably we'll have attrition and people will transition and those types of things. And we expect that and want to celebrate that even as people move on to bigger things. And I really like meeting people who maintained a healthy relationship. And I think mm -hmm. one of the things you've done is there's no question. I mean, maybe under the hood, there might be a little tension every now and then, but publicly there's no sure. question that you're a huge fan of what they're up to. And it's a mutually beneficial relationship and things are going well. I so hope the CEO listens to this podcast and hears yeah. that. I hope that's true. I think they yeah, right? believe that I have their company's success in mind. I have my success in mind. Obviously, they're paying me and I take that very seriously. And yeah. it's probably the thing I'm most proud of in my career, that yeah. I still talk to the chairman of the board once a month and the CEO a couple times a week or such. I know my place, right? I mean, they can walk away from the contract and so can I at any point. And yeah. at the same time, I'm raising three boys and apparently they want braces and Nike dunks. They want to go to college <laughs> and you need tutors and basketball lessons. And so, you know, I appreciate the fact that Franklin Covey has continued to provide me with a consulting arrangement that's been good for my family. Obviously, I could probably earn more if I took those 30 hours a week and did something else. But like your producer, I get up early in the morning and work hard. And <laughs> will I be an ambassador for them forever? Probably not. But as long as it keeps working for both of us, it's a proud accomplishment that I think anybody could replicate because I don't burn bridges. And I yeah. try to apologize and take responsibility when I do something that I shouldn't have. Oh, that's gold. That's gold. I appreciate that. So one last question before we spend the rest of the time talking about the book, because it's so good. Why are you doing what you're doing now? You know, you, you were in, you know, the belly of the beast, the bigger organization, and now you're creating your own agency. Talk to us about the inspiration for that and why you decide, not necessarily why you left Frank and Covey, but why did you, you move toward this particular new business? You know, when I was thinking of leaving Franklin Covey, our publicist told me over lunch in private, Scott, it will take you three years to build your brand. And she was right. So I started Oof. writing books and building my brand. And when I left the company, a good friend of mine had also left the company, one of the Covey family members. And he <laughs> said to me, I have one of two options. I can go try to become an author, a speaker, and a thought leader, or I can open a speaking agency, which now became a literary talent agency. <laughs> and I feel pretty confident on either one of them. And he said to me, you want to go crack your head or crack your hand? What's the word? Not crack your head. Try your hand. Try your hand. Neither of those. Thank you. Mark, <laughs> you, you, you communicator. 
He said, you ought to go try your hand at being a speaker because you'll never forgive yourself if you don't at least try. Yes. So I went out and wrote four books and started speaking and I enjoyed it and had some modicum of success. But as you know, I have three sons and there's nothing more important than driving my sons to school in the morning and talking yeah. about their fears and their joys and who's bullying them and who they're bullying and talking about yeah. how to be a good person. And so I decided to open up the speaking literary and talent agent because although I enjoy speaking, it's not, it doesn't drive me. I don't need to be on stage. I have mm. a big ego, but I can feed that other ways. Honestly, I recognize it. Yeah. And so I really do enjoy shining the spotlight on other people. And I'm in a phase in my life. It's rare to be 55 and have an eight-year-old. And so these are <laughs> crucial. I mean, honestly, right? These are crucial years of my life to make sure that we launch these three boys as gentlemen in a tough world. Yeah. So for me, it was probably less mission-driven and more priority driven. But I also realized that I had this network and that I had this network with, you know, young presidents organization and associations and companies. And I had this vast network from the podcast. So it was kind of a natural pollination of talent and all that kind of stuff. And so it wasn't that I was mission driven on a talent agency. It was marching driven, <laughs> but I was also lifestyle driven, right? I didn't yeah. want to be on a plane five days a week and my boys 15 years from now say, but dad, you were never here for us. And also, I love the creativity. I just want to affirm you. The you know, In our company, one of our core words is nobility. And we define that as prosperity, community, generosity, and creativity. And essentially, it's finding your unique contribution in the world and giving that away and doing it with others. And I feel like you've done a really good job of that, especially in this next season of, of lifestyle design. And a lot of people would say, I have to make less uh, because I need to spend more time with my family, but you've Hitler. actually found a way to either maintain and as yeah. you get the flywheel going, you know, it's yeah. entirely possible. This is my hope for you that your greatest financial acquisitions are in your future, and you and it'll come from yeah. you really being in the crucible of protecting what's most important to you. Speaking of adding value, speaking of being creative in lifestyle design, you've written seven books. And another time I'd like to have you on, we can talk about the process by which you write seven books so quickly. Because again, the speed at which you content create. While writing mediocre books, but go ahead. <laughs> oh, so, so you know, and full disclosure, I haven't read your other books, but I have read The Ultimate Guide to Great Mentorship and the subtitle 13 Roles to Making a True Impact. And I really, you know, when I got in the mail, you know, you read books and you interview people, and that's fine. And then I was so pleasantly delighted by the quality and the practicality, it is so helpful. Yeah, you know, this is, you know, so I, you know, a part of my life, I don't have a lot of clients these days because I spend most of my time doing executive leadership things, if I could call it that. And still, as I was reading this, it's shaped, it's shaping how I work with my clients and it's shaping how I hope our coaches work with the clients. And so this is a great, great, great resource. And by the way, if you're listening to this and you're a coach, you need to buy this. It's out, it's, it'll be out by the time this podcast drops. There we go. And if you're in executive leadership, or forget executive leadership. If you are any, if you have any desire at all to invest in younger leaders or the next generation, and that doesn't have, not, not like that's have to be like twenty years younger than you, or whatever it doesn't matter. If you are investing in people for a living, this book is such a great resource. So I'm excited to dive into it. Scott, tell us about the, give us the origin story, give us the genesis, give us why you wrote it because you could have written about anything. So HarperCollins called me up and asked me to write the topic. I had hmm. written two books for HarperCollins called Master Mentors, kind of like Chicken Soup for the Podcast Soul, where every year I write a book about 30 of my favorite guests on the podcast that I host on leadership with the permission of the guest. Big names, Ariana Huffington, Seth Godin, Dan Pink, Liz Wiseman, Jerome McChrystal, 
Matthew McConaughey, people like that. And yeah. the book got some traction called Master Mentors. And I kind of became the mentor guy. Hmm. Now, of course, I've been the recipient of great mentorship in my life. I've hopefully mentored lots of people, but I didn't know that I had a book in me. So anyway, HarperCollins called me and said, we think there is an opening for a very practical book on mentorship. Would hmm. you like to write one? And I said, maybe. I had, by the way, had other books that I was writing on careers, on power skills. I've got a lot of books that are coming out, believe it or not, in the next year, four coming out of the next 26 what? months. <laughs> and a lot of books in me. And yeah. so- I thought about it and said, you know what? I would love to write a book about mentorship because I often think that mentors are usually leaders mm -hmm. and they're usually either volunteered or voluntold to become a <laughs> mentor and that great leaders don't always make great mentors. In fact, a lot of the competencies that make you a great leader don't translate well into mentorship. And there's a difference between <laughs> mentorship and coaching, the difference yes. between mentorship and allyship and sponsorship and championship. Yes. And so I wanted to write, to your point, a very practical book. Say this, don't say that. Check this talent. Consider, is this a talent or is this a overplaying of your talent? Yes. And so it's a fairly prescriptive book, rudimentary by kind of strategy. And it's actually been well-received at universities. I have universities that are buying the book by the thousands to give yeah. to their alumni, to mentor their freshmen. It's being bought by... Fortune 500s that have mentoring initiatives. And so I'm quite delighted at how well the book is being received before it's even released because there hasn't been a real practical book, certainly aspirational books. John Maxwell and others have written seminal yes. books on mentorship, but they're just different. It's not, you know, say this, don't say this. It doesn't have a lot of narrative in it. And that's what my book has. Well, and I like, I agree. That's my experience. The chapters are, and I mean this as a compliment, the chapters are short. It's almost Different. devotional, like where you could read like one chapter Ooh, in a few minutes every morning. And I, I really like doing that. I like finding books where I can just spend a little bit of it every day and then pound it out, which is great. And this is definitely one of those. And also, you know, and it has like a workbook stuff and at least the galley copy that I got yep. has workbook yep. stuff in it, which I really appreciate. So can you walk us through the philosophy of the book and how there's like the 13 different? Sure. So I started with 15 roles and my mm -hmm. editor passed out and he said, hello, seven habits of highly effective people. You've broken the golden rule. So I threw him a bone and brought it down to 13, which still was like five more than he wanted, but I didn't care because I do think these are roles that mentors play. Not all of them, not all the time. Sometimes you don't play them. Sometimes you overplay them. So this really was about building not a mastery, but an awareness of, should I be yes. in the questioning role? Should I be in the absorbing role? Should I set boundaries? Should I be the validator? Should I be the closer? And so, the, like you said, the book is fast, easy, and breezy. And it was really kind of based on the premise that not all of the skills that have made you influential in your career are going to make you a great mentor. I think the biggest mistake mentors make is they come in, they say, well, Jason, if I were you, here's what I would do. And it's the biggest mistake you can make because Jason doesn't have your passion, your education, your 401k. He doesn't have your longevity, your history. He has different traumas and experiences and life journeys and different goals. And so I wanted yeah. to make sure that mentors understood you might be the best, most piercing question asker in your company. You can get to the root cause in three questions. You can read a P&L in a matter of seconds. Great for you. That is a leadership competency. But if you're mentoring a uh, underprivileged kid, 
if you're mentoring a college sophomore that is, you know, intimidated by your title, by your stature, by your profile, by your age, by your vocabulary, by your business acumen, they're going to not be their natural selves. They're not going to be comfortable being uncomfortable and they're going to want to match your personality and be someone that they're not. Yeah. So I wanted to yeah. make sure that the readers knew that mentorship is situational. It's circumstance-based on the desires and goals of your mentee and become more aware of how effervescently you could move in and out of some of these roles. Yeah, and I so even just to clarify, and if you don't mind, Scott, I like to play with this a little bit. So 13 roles, another metaphor you could say is like 13 different colors that you can paint with as you're creating something with a client or with someone, a mentee or whatever. And at least in my experience, if you would have asked me before I looked at your book, hey, what are some of the main roles? I could have given you like the primary colors, you know, and I do this for a living, you know, and I could, yeah, this one, this one, this one. And I didn't realize it, but like I would answer that way because I have my favorites, but I didn't realize they were my favorites. I just, I thought that was what a coach did. And when I read your book, you showed me like five other colors that once I read it, I was like, oh yeah, that makes sense. But they weren't colors I naturally defaulted to. And so it broadens my palette, which I was really excited about. Go ahead. Well, then in that thought, there's some danger. For example, role number eight is the visionary, mm-hmm. which we always hear as a skill, right? That's is right. you want to be a big, bold thinker and give people a picture of what they may not have thought is possible. And you think, well, what downside is there to that? A lot. Is One this? of my most irresponsible strengths is I have like no end to the vision I could paint. You live in yeah. you live in Miami, never seen snow, fly to Utah. I'll have you skiing black diamonds in two hours, right? Yeah. Never yeah. given a speech before? Oh, you can speak next week in front of 7,000 people. Let's just practice it for an hour. And so I sometimes irresponsibly paint mm. a vision for people that is something that I could do or that I want to do that is in no way tethered to reality on what it yes. is they can do or should do or want to do and you can vision your mentee into failure, into crippling yeah. them. And now you've left them damaged because now they think they couldn't do it. And so now you're onto the next mentee. And now this person believes that they shouldn't take risk and shouldn't move. So I think there's a downside to some of these natural strengths. Maybe you shouldn't be the visionary. Maybe you should be the practicality coach that says, well, hey, let's calibrate this on what you really feel you can do. Stretch a little bit. But I have just found that some of my biggest, sometimes the biggest damage I've done on people was well-intended, but I envisioned a future for them that I mistook as a future for me. What if one call could change what you once thought was impossible into a reality? Novus Global is offering you an exploration call with one of their world-class coaches to explore what you as a leader and your team are capable of. Novus Global is an elite executive coaching firm that works with multi-billion dollar companies, professional athletes, nonprofit leaders in faith and government, all to create teams, companies, and communities that go beyond high performance. Book your call right now, just go to novus.global forward slash now. One is I've definitely been guilty of that. I think in my leadership, I'm similar to you. We have we definitely have some different personalities, some different strengths, but the visioning thing, I get so excited about it. And what I love about your book is that you, these 13 roles show you like golf clubs that you should be swinging with, but also how each of them can be overplayed. Now, I want to focus on two of my favorite. And by favorite, I mean ones I wasn't expecting or ones I hadn't necessarily thought about before. And you've already mentioned 
both of them, which I'm glad that our audience has been exposed to the terms. So the, f- the first one, this is early in the book, and the second one is towards the end of the book, but the first one is the boundary setter. And I had never thought about that in terms of mentoring. And I feel like most times when people come to mentor you, you're like, sure, whatever. And then you get together and there's no rules of the game. There's no really anything. And maybe you have a few conversations and it goes well, but then they stop reaching out or they don't bring something to talk about or whatever. And then it kind of fizzles out. I'm, you know, I used to be a pastor in my 20s and I had a lot of people be like, yeah, I want to meet with you. And I just want to like pick your brain or whatever. And we do that once or twice. And then it's like, okay, I'm good. So talk to us a little bit about the boundary setter and the function that plays in creating a healthy developmental relationship. You know, I was, I was launching a university mentor program a few months ago, and the board of trustees was there with me to understand my book and my programs and how all these students were going to benefit from this. And he was a senior executive at a major technology company. You would know the name. Obviously, uber competent. And also, yeah. great personality to beat as well. And he opened the session with how excited he was because he'd just come the day before from the student union in a sort of a speed mentoring session where he'd mentored nine students each like nine minutes. Uh-huh. And I thought, well, that's cool. And then he yeah. was so proud of how he'd made all these connections to his attorney, to his accountant, to his, his realtor. And he'd made all these connections, these students, and they connected them to his network and how proud he was that he'd been able to do this. And I let him have his moment. And in a genteel See. way, I said, I'm very excited for you. I said, and just for the record, just so you know, I never would have done that. I said, I don't know about you, but next to my reputation, and I'm a religious guy, so my soul, my most valuable possession is my network. I've worked really hard to develop this network, and I would never give someone access to it after having met them for nine minutes. Like, no circumstance. Now, am I going to hook up Ariana Huffington with Seth Godin in a heartbeat, right? But different story. And I said... Because that reflects on my reputation. Because if I connect a student with someone significant in my world, and that student is a liar or a gossiper, or they're conniving, or they don't keep commitments they make, they don't show up, they use and abuse, then that's my reputation, not theirs. And now my reputation has been sullied. I said, so I would take much more care and thought. And you could hear like a collective sigh, not just come across the room, but he's thinking, you know what? I hear you. My point yeah. is the yeah, boundary yeah. setter is the role of the mentor to early on set boundaries of what you are and are not going to provide your mentee with. And it's awkward because setting boundaries is uncomfortable. Yes. You know, discussing the undiscussables is difficult for us sometimes, especially if you're avoidant or you don't like conflict or yep. having high courage conversations. Yep. Let's role play for a moment. Jason, let's pretend that. I'm your mentor. I'm sure it would be the reverse if it was in real life. Jason. <laughs> yes. Hey, I'm excited that we've been matched. Looking forward to this relationship for the next nine months. I understand we're going to meet approximately twice a month. And so very much excited to learn from you because even though I'm the mentor and you're officially the mentee, no doubt you have wisdom and there's things that I'm going to learn from you as well. And I'm looking forward to those. Before we start, I'd like to have a bit of an uncomfortable conversation, an awkward conversation. Jason, it might last two or three minutes, so be assured we'll go back to being comfortable in just a few moments. But I think it's important that I set some boundaries. And by the way, Jason, I'm also going to invite you to determine are there any boundaries as the mentee that you'd like to set with me? First, I think it's important that you know I will not be comfortable serving 
in a role as champion, ally, or supporter, or reference. Those are different than the role of mentor. You're going to have to find other people to serve those roles. But as your mentor, my job is to bring the wisdom of my experience, my successes, and my messes to you in the hopes to help you accomplish what you decide it is you want to do and learn out of this mentor. So please don't put me or ask me to play that role because that's a role I'm not willing to play. Second, Hmm. I'm not a therapist. I'm married. I'm a leader. I'm a parent, but I'm not a therapist. So if you do need any counseling or help in that realm, I'm not your guy. I'm also not a mortgage broker or a mortgage banker. And so I would hate for you to ever think that I might be interested in investing in this business you've been talking about because that's not a role that I'm comfortable playing. So I would just hate to avoid any embarrassment there. And then lastly, I want to make sure you know, I actually guard my network with great care and jealousy. I'm not a scarce person. I think I'm an abundant person, but you should be aware that I'm not interested in making connections in my network. I think I can provide you immense value. You get the point, right? That may seem harsh. That may seem a little bit early. I probably would do that in the second call or the end of the first call. But, you know, good fences make good neighbors. And by the way, I set that fence a little high. And now I'm going to watch Jason over the next six months and see what he's like. Does he earn the right for that fence to lower and lower and lower? Because I might change my mind and become the connector. I think it's actually role 11 or 12. That's right. It's towards the end. 11. And then decide, I might decide five I may decide that Jason has shown up early, prepared, on camera, ready to go, has a realistic agenda, has captured all the commitments he made from the last session. He's delivered on them. He's not wasting my time. And I'm thinking, this guy is the bomb. I I might three sessions in say, forget connecting you. I want to hire you. But I think it's important to set those boundaries firm up front so your mentee, who sometimes will be unconsciously incompetent about protocol, standards, the politics. Just save them and you from the embarrassment and have that conversation up front. And be sure to invite them to do the same. Jason, I'm guessing you may have some boundaries. Now, the the, the odds are that your junior mentee is going to have some boundaries are probably pretty low, but at least you set the standard that this is a two-way street. I'm not the boss. I'm the mentor. And we may you may have some boundaries. You may say to me, my family abandoned me when I was three, so I have some trauma around family references. Could you do your best to minimize that conversation with me? I'm like, totally. I get that. Yep. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Or I can even think of some people I've known have had like language barriers where like, hey, certain types, it's like profanity. Some people love it yep. <laughs> and it's great. Right. Some people like, hey, not my thing or even yep. different styles of relating. So like yelling, you know, I feel like coaches, we will put on whatever personality we need to put on in order to break through to a client. And it's helpful when they're like, hey, this style is not my preference. Yep. And that takes time. And here's what I love about it, Scott. You're not just telling people how it's going to work. You're you're also gently saying, and this is how it isn't going to work. Yeah. And both of those are so, so important. And again, when I was reading that, I was like, oh, that's so good. Like I never really thought of, and if our coaches are listening to this podcast, it's like, this that's good. That's really good to set the boundaries. The next one, and the last one we'll talk about today, because I recommend everyone just buy the book and read all 13. But this one, and this one impacted me today. Today, I was using your book with a client today, and it's The Closer. 
And when I first looked at the table of contents, I thought the closer was like the person who lands the deal and is able to, you know, close the contract. And, you know, because I really admire people who are able to have those conversations and just create mutual value on the spot. Boom, it happens. And I was surprised that that's not at all what the closer is. Can you tell us who the closer is and why it's important? You know, the closing really is about ending, right? It's about sending off. It's about when you end your mentor relationship or coaching relationship, because there's some nuances between the two of those. It's about doing a variety of things. It's about, you know, kind of being the archivist and pulling through. Here's where we've been. Look where we've come. Look where you've come. Look where I've come as the mentor. Let's talk about some of the funny things that we argued about early on. Let's talk about some of the successes that you've accomplished. Let's articulate the things that you've learned from me and that I've learned from you. By the way, let's revisit the cutting room floor. You know, there was three things we parked. Is there any reason to go back and visit those, with, if not with me, with your next mentor? And that's huh. important right there because, Jason, if you're my mentee, I may say, Jason, I've so enjoyed the last nine months and I recognize that you're going to be graduating with your MBA next June. I'll look forward to an invitation to coming to that graduation because we probably won't talk or see each other between now and then. Now, what I've subtly done is I let you know, I'm not coming to your kegger next Friday. I'm not <laughs> coming to your birthday party. We're not going to the you know twins game together because I got to move on in life. And so I've subtly also set some boundaries for the go forward. But I think send-offs are really important to make sure you say the things you want to say, you illustrate, celebrate the things that need to be vocalized, and maybe even say, you know what, early on we had some disagreements. I think that's part of any healthy relationship, but whatever it is, talk about it, make it comfortable. I think one of the greatest competencies in life, and it's a cliche now, is being comfortable, being uncomfortable. Like I hate, hate, hate going to bars. Like if you want to torture me, (laughs) put me in a bar on a Friday night at 1030 with loud rock music, with useless conversation, people I don't know, pretending (laughs) I enjoy it. I'd honest to God rather go mow five acres. Yeah. But I sometimes do that because I got to learn how to loosen up a little bit and not everything is business. (laughs) And I got to talk about the Eagles and go Yankees and whatever, or hockey, or I got to sometimes broaden my language. And as much as I hate it, I'm good at sometimes being comfortable, being uncomfortable. And I think the closer makes it apparent that that's a skill in life as you're closing. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a, I think some people, no, it's wonderful. I think some people naturally are good at the opener and some people are naturally good at the closer. And I would say, I I love putting, even like with talks, you know, when I was younger, I would put so much energy into the opener. And the first 10 minutes of my talk was so polished. But then the last five minutes, at one time, I'm not proud of this. I used to speak at, sometimes at this church called Mosaic in Los Angeles. And yeah. I was on staff there and Erwin let me speak. It was really gracious of him. And I get done with my talk. I'm at the Mayan nightclub. We used to meet in a nightclub. You know, almost a thousand people in the room. And I hadn't, I forgot how to like land the plane. And so I literally, I don't know if you can find this on the internet anywhere, but I literally say, that's it. That's all I got. <laughs> It's seated so often. It's weird because someone's holding up, you know, a one minute sign of the back yeah. and a close yeah. sign of the back. And you're like, I got four more slides left or yes. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> so, yeah. so his, like just temperamentally, 
I love putting most of my energy into the beginning and I can sometimes neglect the close. So when I read that, it was like the chapter has such practical things like questions to ask yourself. And I wrote them down. So I wrote them down from the book. I put them in an Evernote file. And today I wrapped up a contract with one of my favorite people. He's an amazing executive. We worked together for almost five years and and it was just so much fun. And we both loved it so much. And it was just time to not do that anymore. This is real time, me getting value from your book. Uh, You recommend going and seeing like how you met those things and early wins and successes and failures and some of the things you've already mentioned in this conversation. So I went back and I found the email when I was introduced to him. And then I made a little like pitch. I made like a, you know, this isn't complicated, but I made a PowerPoint where I have the email and I have the date. And then, you know, we use Asana in our company to capture commitments and stuff like that. And so I went in and I captured like our first, the notes from our first intake call at four, four years ago. And I captured like key commitments that he had made that had like just changed that, you know, not that I was good commitments he made that had changed his life and changed the trajectory. And, you know, it was just such a sweet, rather than it coming to the end and being awkward or whatever, it was just such a sweet remembrance of all of his hard work. And, you know, the company, I think had gone from like 75 million in pipeline to 750 million in pipeline. And again, not that like us and our coaches can take credit for that, but it was just fun to remember all and, you know, going through COVID together and everything. And I'll be honest, man, I don't know if I would have done, I for sure wouldn't have done all that. I don't know what I would have done for the close, but it wouldn't have been any good. That's what I'm saying. This was awesome. Can I tell you, can I tell you what inspired me there? Huh. Very quickly, there's a book called Chasing Daylight. Yes. A very powerful book that a former executive in Minnesota wrote about unwinding his life, I believe, with a maybe like a brain cancer diagnosis. Hmm. If, you have anyone in, if you have anyone in your life that has been informed they have a, you know, a terminal illness that's somewhat imminent, it's a beautiful book to give to someone. It's called Chasing Daylight. I'm going to check it out. And what this executive said, and he didn't finish the book. His wife had to finish the last chapter. He died before it, but it was a beautiful book, Chasing Daylight. Hmm. He said, whenever someone came to visit him, they always had a response. You're going to make it, or you're going to be okay, or I'll see you real soon. And he said he had one friend that called him up, and that one friend had the courage to say goodbye. Hmm. And it just, I'm getting emotional repeating this story because he said it was the one friend that realized he's not going to see me again. We're never yeah. going to talk again. He was comfortable recognizing that my life is ending and we're never going to talk again. And he just, he didn't say, I'll see you in heaven or yeah. you're going to pull through. He just said goodbye. And that's always had a profound impact on me that sometimes closings are final. And that kind of inspired me to just not make that be the theme of the chapter, but recognize, yeah, be comfortable closing things out. That's right. You might re-engage. You might not. You might he might fund your business someday. You might go on a trip together, but you might not. And I don't mean to take the morbidity of this other book, but sure, I have given that book courageously and maybe even sometimes a little bit hazardously to people that sure. I knew had a terminal illness hoping that they would see it as a gift on kind of how to wrap up their life. And when I'm ever dealing with someone who I know is at the end of their life, I've become more courageous. The last words I say are goodbye. Goodbye. Yeah, and I, you know, not to wax philosophical on this too much, but 
in a world where you can be endlessly connected. And I remember when I left Kansas City for Los Angeles 20 years ago, you said goodbye. But now you can move cities and you still see each other even more than you did because now you're you know seeing them on social media or whatever. And it does feel like people have forgotten the art of goodbye. And it can be one of the best parts of the relationship if you know how to do it well. And I appreciated your book for Thank you. reminding me of the mastery. It's worth becoming a master at how to say goodbye in a way that leaves you with a nice, rich sense of satisfaction. And there's a little bit of there's a little bit of kind of, sonic, kind of some continual boundary setting in there, so that as the mentor, you may need to make it clear to your mentee, "This has been great. It's over. I wish you great success, including with your next mentor, who we both yeah. know won't be me." Just because yeah. you know, not everybody has the same social cues. Not everybody has the same. <laughs> perception of relationships and interpersonal dynamics. And, you know, like you, I lead a fairly public life. And sometimes I have to wrap things up and say, I've enjoyed these three coaching calls with you. And now I have to move to other people. And sometimes I have to be a little bit more firm than I want to be because they're not getting the fact that I'm not in business to be a pro bono coach to (laughs) you any longer. It's been lovely for you. And now we're going our separate directions. Brene Brown says... Clear is kind. Uh-huh. And not everybody receives it that way. But you can't control how other people will receive it. You can only control how you send it yeah. and the intent that you share with it. I'm glad you liked the closing role. I really did. And, you know, and not to put too fine a point on it, but that's a great place for us to end. Scott, I really, your, your story is. Mike genius. Look how my genius has even made you a better right. podcast host. Wow. Right? Right? Wow. It's just, it's natural. I just feel it. I'm feeling it. My, it's elevating my performance. I'm going beyond high performance. <laughs> You're going yeah. beyond it. You're going to yeah. ultimate performance. I really have enjoyed talking with you, Scott. And I love your story. I love the journey. I love how you have navigated your relationship with Franklin Covey. I love what Thank you're doing you. now. And, yeah. and I really, really, really love your book. And so please... We usually do this afterwards, but you, I do want you to tell us, we'll put in the show notes, where can people find you? Where can people access this? I mean, wherever books are sold or whatever, but what are your other podcasts? How can be, people get more from you if they've enjoyed this conversation? So my wife will tell you I way overexposed. She thinks she, it should be harder to find me. But <laughs> the book is The Ultimate Guide to Great Mentorship, releases July 11th, audio, digital, and soft cover print. <laughs> the website is greatmentorship.com. I've developed a mentor kit people can buy, including a 90-minute video-based certification to become a certified mentor at nice. greatmentorship.com. My world lives on scottjeffreymiller.com. You can connect to me on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, Clubhouse. I'm everywhere. TikTok. <laughs> I shouldn't be everywhere, but that's the life of an author and a speaker nowadays, right? So Yes, it is. I'd love to have any of your listeners connect to me and share maybe any benefits they learned from the books that I've written or the ones that I'm coming up to release in the next year or two. The other four that are coming out in the next 24 months. Yeah. I love it. Well, we'll have you back to talk about your creative process. But in the meantime, Scott Miller, thanks so much for being on the show. You're a class act. Thank you, man. All right. We have a few more things to let you know about before we go. First, podcast reviews really help us serve more people. So if this podcast is helpful for you, we'd love your help to get it into as many leaders' hands as possible. Please leave us a review, even if it's not five stars. And if you really want to go the extra mile, let us know what you'd like to hear more of or what you think we could do better to serve you and the people you care about. 
Okay, second, we have more resources for you online and they're all free. We have free assessments, educational videos, articles from sources like Fast Company, written by our coaches and clients, all designed to help you use our tools in your everyday life and leadership. To dive into the free treasure trove of goodies we have for you, go to novus.global and then click on resources. Some of you have been listening for a while and you haven't yet taken that next step to hire a coach. This is your time. I can't tell you how often I've heard from clients around the world that they wish they would have talked to us sooner. If you have a sense that you're capable of more, we would be thrilled to explore what coaching could do for you and those you influence. Simply email us at begin at novus.global or click the link in the show notes. You also might be listening to this thinking, maybe you wanna be a coach, or maybe you already are and you have a vision to build a six or seven figure practice coaching people you love in a way that brings life to you and your clients. Well, that's why we created the Meta Performance Institute for Coaching. It is an in-depth coaching apprenticeship designed to help you create the coaching practice of your dreams. The first step in exploring that is simple. Just go to www.mp, as in metaperformance.institute. There we have free assessments to help you see what kind of training you need to create the coaching practice the way our coaches do at Novus Global. And finally, and for some of you, this will be the most important part. This podcast was produced by Rainbow Creative with Matthew Jones as senior producer, Steven Selnick as producer, and editors and audio engineers, Drew MacPal and Jeremy Davidson. We love working with this team. To find out more about how to create a podcast for you and your business, check them out at rainbowcreative.co. Thank you so much for listening. We love making these for you. And remember, dare to go beyond high performance.